as we come to the Word of God, I want us to consider what is the most important question a man or a woman could ask and rightly answer. And the question is this. What is it that must take place for a man or a woman to be right with God? That is the most important question that anyone could ever ask. And to convince you of that, if you're doubtful as to whether that matters, consider that right now in the world, so much of what is driving the entire populace of this green earth is fear. And it's fear of death. People fear death. When we look at the the world today and we consider what's happening even here in our own country, it is evident that people are afraid, and, and what they're fundamentally afraid of is dying. And what's interesting about that is when you consider the way the world typically responds to death, they will typically say when losing a loved one that their loved one is in a better place. But the fact of the matter is they don't really believe that. The world doesn't believe inherently that when you die, you go to a better place. Otherwise, they'd be in a greater hurry to get there. And they'd be less afraid of fear. They don't really have a confidence, an assurance that, that when they die, they will actually be in the presence of God. In his presence for blessing. In his presence for joy and everlasting life. If they had that confidence, there would be less fear. But the fact of the matter is that there is a fear of death. There is a sting in death. That sting must be removed. And it's removed by rightly answering and responding to the question, what is it that's required for a man or a woman to be right with God? And so I want to do that this morning. I want to answer that question as clearly and and simply as I possibly can. And I want to do that from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. And so if you would, open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. And I want to, I want to read these verses. These verses really function to highlight why it is that salvation takes place by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at verse 10 with me. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, these verses answer for us why it is that a right standing before God, what is referred to as justification, is granted 
by grace alone, which means it's unmerited, unearned, through faith alone, by believing in Christ alone as the only true object of faith that saves. And so the the questions that are posed at this time that this passage will answer is, why isn't it by works? Why isn't a right standing granted on the basis of good works? Or why isn't it uh, a blend, an intermingling of faith and works that saves? Why is it that it's by faith alone in Christ alone? And I'm going to show you four reasons from our passage today. Four reasons that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that it is impossible to earn a right standing with God by being a good person, by practicing the works of the law. And here's the first reason. You'll see this in verse 10. The first reason is this, because the law brings a curse. Because the law brings a curse. Look at verse 10 with me. It says there, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That opening statement that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse is a statement that indicates that everyone attempting to earn a right standing with God through works is under God's judgment. They are under a sentence of condemnation that attempting to earn salvation through some measure of good done in your life results in nothing but a curse. And that curse there is going to be contrasted with the blessing we'll see in verse 15. The law brings a curse on everyone that attempts to earn a right standing before God by works. And this curse is universal. It applies to absolutely everyone. It applies to the, the religious, those who are the most keen, the most diligent, the most fastidious, the most rigid, the most given to self-denial. It is it is it is it is those who are the most religious people on, on the face of the planet that are under a curse. But it's also the irreligious. People who don't consider themselves to be religious. In fact, it's even people who would say they're not religious, but they're spiritual. That they believe that they are a good person. And that when they stand before God on judgment day, they'll be able to appeal to the certain good things they've done in their lives. And because of that goodness, God will 
will give them entrance into his kingdom. And so it applies to the the most religious, it applies to the irreligious, it applies to the immoral. It applies to even those people who aren't even trying to be right with God. Those who have no reason to believe they would ever be granted entrance into God's kingdom, and furthermore, are pretty certain they're going to spend an eternity in hell. They're under a curse. And the reason that, that the religious and irreligious are under a curse is for two reasons. One, the religious person is under some form of law. If you take the Jew, for example, they were given the law of God. They were given it at Sinai. And with that law, they were under a curse because, truth of the matter is, they failed to perform everything in it. We'll see that in a moment. But for those who don't have law, who aren't looking to a particular kind of righteousness or standard of morality that's outside of them that they would measure their lives against, they have a law built into their their very being. The law is written upon their heart, and so they're a law unto themselves. And the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles, so non-Jews, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. So every human being has a conscience, and written on the conscience is a standard of morality that no one is able to live up to. None of us have lived a life that perfectly obeys even our own conscience. And so even if the standard that's in our conscience isn't quite right because it's inaccurately informed, and we fail to even live up to that, cursed. And under the curse of the law. And so the question is why? Like why, why the curse? Why is all of mankind under a curse? Why does the law bring a curse? Whether it's the law of God written in the Old Testament or whether it's the law written on the conscience, why is it that law brings about a curse? And you see that in the next part of the verse, verse 10, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. It's because Law demands perfection. The entire notion that you would stand before God and, and, and essentially offer your good to offset your bad is, is utter folly because law demands utter perfection and to fail at just one point is to be guilty of the whole law. That's exactly what, what James says. In James 2 and, and verse 10, he says it very, very simply and plainly, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so a single transgression of the law 
is a failure to live up to the perfect standard of the law and therefore brings you under a curse. And the fact of the matter is that every single one of us has transgressed the law far more than once. We have transgressed the law innumerable times and therefore we are under the curse of the law. And again, a curse points to the judgment of God. We are... We come into this world with a, a, a bent towards sin. We are, in fact, slaves of sin. And as we grow up and mature into human beings that are able to discern right from wrong, we engage in evil deeds, and those evil deeds ultimately store up wrath for ourselves because we are under a curse and are therefore under the judgment of God. And if we die in that state, we are going to die in our sins. And if we die in our sins, we are going to spend an eternity paying the penalty of that sin. And so a right standing before God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because the law brings a universal curse on all mankind, where all mankind is under the judgment of God, and no number of good works or even quality of good works can reverse or undo that curse. That curse is settled and in place, and we'll see in a moment how that curse is removed. But before that, the second reason that a right standing before God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is because faith and law are incompatible. Faith and law are incompatible. And we're going to see this in verses 11 and 12. You'll note here that Paul is going to contrast two separate ways to live, and these two ways to live are mutually exclusive. There's no way to intermingle these two ways to live. You either live by law or you live by faith. And Paul highlights faith first in verse 11. He says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Where it says there that no one is justified by law, to be justified is to be declared righteous. To be justified is for you to enter the courtroom of God and for God to declare you righteous. And Paul here is saying that no one is declared righteous by law before God is evident. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and says, The righteous man shall live by faith. So he's appealing to the Old Testament. And obviously in the context of this letter that he's writing to the Galatians, he is battling for the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there are these Judaizers who have come in and they are trying to persuade the Galatians that you need to combine Jesus and the law. It's Jesus plus works equals salvation. And Paul is saying, no, if you do that, if you, if you try and combine Jesus and the law, you, you, you destroy salvation. You end up with a completely different gospel and, and you are under the curse of the law because that's what the law brings. The law brings 
a curse. And so the Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament here. He's already done that earlier in this chapter by appealing to Abraham because Abraham was the the quintessential man of faith who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But now he's appealing to Habakkuk 2.4 where it says the righteous man shall live by faith. To live is to possess eternal life. It's to have life that is going to last beyond the life that we're presently living. It's to have life with God. The the certainty that when you die, you will experience life after death in God's kingdom, in his presence, a, a life that is full of joy and blessing where you will worship God and experience the new heavens and the new earth. And so the emphasis here in terms of life is on the future aspect of possessing eternal life. The righteous man shall live by faith. And that it's by faith rather than works, which Paul will contrast in a moment, that it's by faith is to say that to live is as a result of faith. The righteous man shall live as a result of faith, not as a result of works. It's on the basis of faith that a person is declared righteous, which is to say that they are justified and therefore live. That's the first way to live. And it's the only way to live. Paul's going to contrast life by faith with an attempt to live by law in verse 12. Look at it. He says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. The law is not consistent with faith. The law is not compatible with With faith. Why? Because it fails to realize that a right standing before God is unachievable. Any attempt to live by law is to fail to understand that the law cannot remove the curse, that the law has no power to produce righteousness in a fallen sinner. And really, that law is not of faith would indicate that if you believed you could, you could enter into God's presence and have a right standing before him through the law, you would be believing that you can actually make God your debtor, where he owes you something. That is not of faith. When a person tries to stack up deeds of righteousness that they're going to ultimately appeal to before God as the basis for entering his kingdom, they're essentially saying, God, you owe me. You're my debtor. And therefore, you have to pay me with life, eternal life, on account of my righteousness. Well, God is a debtor of no man. God doesn't owe anyone anything. And to treat God as though he owes you something is the epitome of pride. 
Paul quotes Leviticus 18.15, where he says there, he who practices them shall live by them here. To live, again, points to spiritual life, eternal life, life that's going to transcend this life, life that's going to allow you to participate in the life to come. And to live by the works of the law is really, again, to live as a result of them. It's to, it's to, it's to approach life spiritual life, eternal life, as though you can secure it through works, through deeds of righteousness. Where the works of the law then become the basis of life. And of course, this is a complete and utter impossibility because Paul has already said that the law brings a curse. And for as many as are attempting to to establish a, a righteousness by the law, they are under a curse. And we've shown that all of mankind is under this curse. And so as Paul puts forth this this hypothetical scenario from Leviticus 18.15, he's making it abundantly clear that it's an utter impossibility to attempt to live by law. The only way to live by law is to perform the law perfectly, to keep the law at every point, to have a life of perfect righteousness where there is absolutely no sin, no lying, no, no stealing, no adultery, no covetousness, where you have worshipped the one true God perfectly, having loved him with all your mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I mean, to, to, to have life by law requires that you be perfect. And that's just impossible. None of us can live up to that standard of righteousness. And so any intermingling of works with faith as the basis for eternal life nullifies faith. And once faith is nullified, all you have are the works of the law. And with the works of the law comes nothing but a curse. And since Again, the law only brings a curse. Any reliance on works for a right standing before God only solidifies that curse. The curse remains. And that's because, third, deliverance from the curse depends on Christ. Deliverance from the curse depends on Christ. And this is seen in verse 13, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. To redeem is to liberate. It's to, it's to set free. It's to bring a person out from under the curse. The curse is the judgment of God. It's, it's a sentence of condemnation that, that if, if not removed, is going to result in eternal judgment. And Christ is the one who has redeemed his people out from under that curse. He liberates them. Oftentimes, the language of redemption refers to being bought, where Christ is seen as having purchased us, having purchased us out from under this curse that we're under on account of the law. And the question would be then, well, how did he do this? We'll look at verse 13 again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is pointing to substitution. Jesus Christ became a curse. Now, why would that even matter? 
I mean, if we're all under a curse and Jesus became a curse to redeem us out from under that curse, why does that even matter? What is it about Jesus that makes him fit to become a curse for us that we would then be redeemed out from under that curse? It's that he accomplished and did what we couldn't. He came into this world, born of a virgin, the son of God, taking upon himself human flesh, being true God and true man, and lived under the law and fulfilled the law, fulfilled all righteousness, did everything the law required, was in perfect submission to his father and obeyed the father at every point. Such that when he went to the cross, he was there on that cross as an innocent man. We read that Pilate declared him innocent. The, the thief that repented of his sins declared him innocent. And that's because he was, in fact, innocent. Even the centurion, when he saw the way Jesus died, he knew this man was innocent. It's because he was, in fact, innocent. No blemish, no, no record of wrong. Whereas James says to keep the whole law and stumble at one point makes one guilty of the whole. Jesus never stumbled at one point. He was tempted in all ways as we are, but was without sin. And so it was on that cross that Jesus became a curse. And it's substitution where, in essence, he is subjecting himself to the curse of his people so that he can set his people free from the curse. To understand the moment when that curse was placed upon Christ, it, it wasn't the the physical sufferings that, was the, that were the, the, the gravest difficulty of all that he experienced. It wasn't the, 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 the physical crucifixion that was the worst of all that he underwent, and, and that was horrific. It wasn't the, the, the thorns. It wasn't the, the scourging. It wasn't, it wasn't any of that. That was awful, to be sure. But it was becoming a curse on that cross the righteous Son of God, being condemned, being treated as though he had committed the sins of his people, where the Father who loves his Son pours out his righteous wrath and indignation on his Son so that his Son becomes the sin-bearer. The Father treating his own Son, his perfect and beloved Son, as though his Son had committed the sins of all who would ever believe on his name. It was, it was there on that cross as that was taking place that he became a curse. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken on that cross. And just imagine the, the sin of any individual. My sin alone requires an eternity in hell, an, an eternity of judgment apart from Christ. That's what I deserve. And Jesus on that cross was receiving an eternity of, of eternities. I mean, he was, he was dying on the cross for the sake of the multitudes that would come to him through faith. It wasn't just the, 
the, the judgment and punishment of the sins of one man or one woman. It was all of the redeemed, everyone who would ever believe. He, he bore that in himself, in his own body. Peter describes this in 1 Peter, 2, 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, And he himself, referring to Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. He bore our sins in his body upon that cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, Christ knew no sin, he had never sinned, God the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's this, the great exchange. Christ is imputed with our deeds of wickedness and is treated as a, a criminal, and we are given the righteousness of Christ. God just flips it. The great exchange where Christ is imputed with our wickedness and we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And 1 Peter 3.18 makes it so clear when it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that we might, or that he might bring us to God. Jesus became a curse to reconcile us to God. I mean, think about that verse, 1 Peter 3.18. Who's the just? Christ. He is the righteous one. He is the perfect holy one. He is entirely without sin. Who are the unjust? All those who would believe on him. We're the unjust. We're the unrighteous. And so the just dies once for all for the unjust so that he might bring us back to God, might reconcile us to God through faith. And so salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because deliverance from the curse depends on someone outside of us. It depends on a work that God must do. And that's the amazing thing about this work. It was God the Father who commissioned the Son to do this. I mean, you can see this in Galatians chapter 4, for example, because verse 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It was God the Father that sent the Son. God the Father commissions his Son on a rescue mission to deliver from the curse all who would ever believe on his Son's name. And so a right standing before God requires the deliverer. And there's only one. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one Savior. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only one without sin, and he is the only one 
who could die in our place as our substitute. If he had any sin whatsoever, he could not be our substitute. He himself would need a substitute. And we've already alluded to this, but how is his work applied? How is the work of Jesus Christ applied to any one person? And so here's our fourth reason. A right standing before God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because Christ's work is applied through faith. Because Christ's work is applied through faith. Look at verse 14, it says there, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham is the blessing of God's covenant with Abraham. God declared to Abraham that it would be in him and through his offspring that the, the, the nations would be blessed. And so God had promised that he was going to to make a great nation out of Abraham, and he did. He made the the nation Israel, and he promised that it would be through his seed, through his offspring, and the offspring is Christ, that the nations would receive his blessing. And that blessing is obviously a a salvation. It's, it's, It's the opposite of the curse. If the curse is the judgment of God, whereby if you die under God's judgment, you spend an eternity in hell. The the blessing is the salvation of God, whereby when you die in Christ, you are going to experience eternal life, everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And then it says, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit pointing to the new covenant where the Spirit would actually indwell God's people, where the the law would be put on the heart, written on the heart in such a way that by the Spirit, God's people would begin to actually fulfill that law, would actually begin to, to walk in obedience to that law because God is causing them to obey. And this all through faith not works, not deeds of righteousness, but simply by turning away from any reliance on self, turning away from any trust in deeds of righteousness, turning away from the law and any belief that the law can, can earn you any kind of a right standing before God, just abandoning all of that and turning to Christ and trusting entirely in him. Understanding he's God's son, understanding that, that God punished him upon that cross and, 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 and poured out his wrath and righteous indignation upon him so that if you would turn from your sin and believe on him, you would be imputed with his righteousness, that you would be clothed with his righteousness. And so it's through faith. The question that we asked at the beginning is, how can a man or a woman be right with God? And the only way to be right with God is to be reconciled to God through his Son and by faith. It's by believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be saved. 
And so in this time, if you haven't come to know Jesus, if you don't know him yet, if you've not believed on him yet, this is that opportunity for you to consider the predicament that you're in. At this point in time, if you have not believed on Christ, then you are under a curse, and that curse is the judgment of God. And if you die in your sin this day, you are going to suffer under the judgment of God. You are going to pay the penalty for your sin. And the penalty is an eternity in hell, the lake of fire. It's eternal judgment because God is eternal, and he is holy, and he is just. And a, 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 a violation of his law requires justice. And when you're there, if you reject Christ and you die in your sins and spend your, etern- your eternity in hell, you will know that while you're there, you are receiving a just punishment. That what you're receiving is, is a just penalty for your deeds and your actions. And you will be persuaded of that because you will have stood in the presence of Jesus Christ and behold, beheld his glory. And you will see that he is worthy of all honor, all glory, and all praise. To be under that curse is to realize that you have violated the law, that you are a transgressor and and, and guilty of the law. You can look at your life and know that you have done things you know to be wrong. You know there are things in your life that are evil, that are wicked, that are unfaithful, unjust, unrighteous. And if you can sense that predicament and see that predicament for what it is, then you are are called to believe on Christ. He is the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. And so I exhort you this day, if you've not believed on Christ, to turn from your sin and believe on him and embrace the salvation that's available in him. It is the the most wonderful news I could ever share with you, that you can be right with God and it won't be on the basis of works. That can't get you there, but through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father gave and sent for this very purpose, it's his rescue mission. He's put everything in place for you to be reconciled to him. And now all that's required is that you believe that you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for his righteousness, for a right standing before God. And the promise is that by trusting in him alone, God declares you righteous. He forgives your debt, takes away the 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 certificate of debt that is hostile towards you and that ultimately stands above you as a curse, he takes it out of the way. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ so that when he sees you, he sees his righteousness in the same way that that Jesus is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. You become a, a beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. And you will have the hope of heaven before you, the guarantee that should you die this day and you stand in his presence and God says to you, why? Why should I allow you entrance into my kingdom? You would respond, well, not because of anything I've done in righteousness, because the law brings a curse, but instead because you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. He paid my penalty. And as we'll celebrate on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And it's because of what he did 
and my total trust in that, that you must grant me entrance into your kingdom because you've promised to do so. So I urge you this day, if you haven't believed in him, to believe on Christ, receive the, the blessing of salvation, experience the blessing of having the sting of death removed so that to die truly is to go to a better place. To die truly is to enter into joy and eternal glory. And to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ. I'm going to live for Christ. But to die is gain. And when I die, I get to gain heaven and be in Christ's presence and the Father's presence, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to be with God and to worship God and to be in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. This is what is offered to you today in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you we thank you, Father, for this wonderful rescue mission you've put in place. We thank you, Father God, for commissioning your Son, your one and only Son, your beloved Son, to come and rescue wretched sinners like us. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you, Father God, for redemption from the curse. Father, we thank you that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Deeds of righteousness make no contribution to this. And Father, we thank you that in Christ we have the hope of a resurrection unto life. And Lord, we pray for any who are listening now that you would open their hearts to receive Christ, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would display his glory to them, that they'd be able to see his glory and beauty and majesty, that they'd be able to taste the bitterness of their sin and realize they don't want to live a life devoted to that anymore, and they would just trust in your Son for new life, the forgiveness of sins, and redemption from the curse. Do that, we pray, Father God, this day, in your Son's name. Amen.